Want to make your own podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then lets you distribute it everywhere and anywhere, and even earn money right from it. And it's all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here is how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, no matter where you're at, you can start creating today. Welcome to the Jaguar Report podcast. This is John Shipley, publisher of Jaguar Report, a Sports Illustrated team network. Uh, you know, we cover every aspect of the Jacksonville Jaguars, some news, analysis, breaking down game tape. We, we do it all. And now we're bringing our podcast back to you, to our listeners and readers. Uh, we had our podcast during last season. Uh, and then uh, basically for the entirety of the current pandemic, uh, the podcast has been sidelined. But we're bringing it back now, and I'm happy to announce a uh, newest co-host. Uh, he's a contributor to Jaguar Report. He does some amazing analytical profiles for the site. Uh, Gus Lowe, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the folks? Appreciate that, John. Yeah, I'm, uh, my name's Gus Logue. I'm a senior here at the University of Florida. John was kind enough to let me join the team at Jaguar Report, and so I've been con- cranking out content ever since uh, the beginning of the summer. And like you said, kind of focusing more on analytical pieces. But I'm excited to be part of the team, part of the podcast. And just real quick before, you know, we get into all things uh, Jaguars. I know this is an exciting Jaguars team that's on the brink of contending for the playoffs. So I'm sure you are all wanting to hear about their latest game that absolutely wasn't another loss to another winless team. (laughs) But uh, just real quick, uh, like Gus mentioned, he's been doing some analytical profiles and – We've kind of shifted, uh, Gus, I mean, would you say, like, at least in the last couple of months, we've kind of shifted more in the direction of balancing, you know, like, what we see with our eyes, analytics, and then just, you know, the basic reporting of football? Absolutely. I think Jaguar Report does a great job of kind of using all lenses, and so it's important not to just look at the analytics or just look at the film or just listen to what the coaches and the staff and the players say. And so I think uh, the staff here does a really good job of kind of blending all of those things and turning out really good products for the people. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's what I think is a big thing. Uh, I, I, I think people need to realize that, you know, it, it seems like now people either like really staunchly either analytics or, you know, what you see with your eyes and they just basically have a vendetta for the other argument. The way I've always viewed it is if you can like marry the two sides and, you know, basically – get to the middle and use both of them to help you get to the answer. Uh, I, I think that's the best way to digest football. I think it's the best way to cover football and analyze football. And so that's what we've been trying to do at Jaguar Report the last couple of weeks. Uh, Gus is a big part of that. And now we're bringing this back to you, you know, via podcast. So uh, obviously, you know, we're through five weeks, Gus. The Jaguars are sitting at one and four. Uh, they, they had an upset victory over the Colts in week one. And then they looked, well, the offense looked good in <laughs> week two against the Titans. The defense did not. But, you know, they only lost the Titans by three points, another game that they were big underdogs in. So through two weeks, kind of the story on the Jaguars was, hey, you know, they might not be good, but 
maybe they're not bad, but the last three weeks has basically been the opposite of that. Uh, is, is that a regression you kind of uh, expected? Like, do you really see week one as maybe you're just kind of a fluke or maybe they just got lucky that they were playing Phillip Rivers? Uh, I would see it a little bit as a fluke. Just, I mean, at the time I was pretty excited about the Jaguars standing at one and now. And so that kind of clouded things a little bit. But looking back on it, I think we definitely should have realized it was a little bit of a fluky game. The Colts never punted in that game. They had a fourth and one from the their from the Jags one yard line, and they just weren't weren't able to convert. Philip Rivers had two interceptions that were pretty ugly, but the Jags won the turnover battle, and that's not always something that is predictive or that you can rely on. And so I think if the Jags and Colts played Week One another ten times, I'd say the Colts would win eight or nine times out of ten. To be honest, not that the Jags didn't play really well or that they didn't deserve the victory and it's not sustainable right yeah like Garner Minshew passed for 19 of 20 completions which is super impressive and so it's not that they didn't earn it but I just think that the Colts are a better team than what they showed in week one so I wouldn't be surprised if they won more often than not if we replayed that game yeah absolutely and I I I would agree with that I I think the the Jaguars they kind of they, they they have a few specific matchup areas where they're better than the Colts and like I know the Colts secondary has had really impressive numbers all season, but I, I think a part of that's also, you know, that they they, pl- they played three winless teams in a row at one point. They played the Jets for <laughs> for context. So I think the Jaguars have a good receivers advantage over the Colts kind of slower secondary. And I think that's a big reason why they had their success in week one. You know, they weren't throwing any bombs down the field, but more often than not, guys are kind of, you know, running open on those short to intermediate routes, especially in the red zone. So I, I'd agree with you. And I actually, I, you, I'm glad that you brought up Gardner because I, I was going to mention, like you said, 19 of 20, you know, isn't sustainable. You shouldn't expect that every week. But I kind of feel like Gardner Minshew has been kind of a good, like, microism of, you know, this team. You know, he had really good first two weeks to where you were really encouraged. And then just the last three weeks, it seems like he's fallen off. You know I mean? The last two games, he still has some impressive volume stats, but I don't think you can look at their efficiency – or the red zone production and say, hey, those were good performances, especially when you put them in comparison to Deshaun Watson and Joe Burrow, who I think were hands down more impressive than him in each of the last two contests. I mean, would you agree with that? Do you see the last three games as kind of a step back for him? For sure. And I'm glad you mentioned the production versus efficiency because people kind of point to the stats and be like, oh, well, he passed for 300 yards in 40 attempts and had three touchdowns, so he must have had a great game. But so much of that comes in garbage time. Like the Jaguars, according to fo- football outsiders, lead the league in time of possession when trailing. And so they've basically been garbage time the whole time. And so, of course, Gardner's going to put up good production stats. But I definitely agree that, like, the first two weeks were, like, really impressive from Gardner. And then the last three, not so much. I almost feel like confidence is part of that because I think he was kind of able to get in rhythm with a lot of short and quick completions in the first two games. I thought Jay Green did a, lot, a really good job in the first two games kind of being able to play the Gardner's strengths. But in the last three games when we've been kind of behind almost the entire game, Garner just doesn't really seem that comfortable to me. And he's just kind of going to his checkdowns quicker and scrambling quicker. And he just – I mean, it's part of who he is, but he just isn't really – doesn't really want to throw it downfield. And so that doesn't really help for the Jaguars' offense, which, like I said, has been trailing for most of the past three games. So he's just not necessarily built for that, which is kind of a bummer. But – that's kind of the way it is. And so I think because he's not super keen on throwing downfield and being aggressive, 
and just would rather check down and scramble sometimes. That doesn't really go with the offense. And so it's been kind of less and less confidence and less and less production because of that. I, I'd agree with that uh, completely. I'd, I'd actually say a good way to describe, I'm glad that you said that, a good way to describe his last three uh, games are kind of unconfident performances. You know, he just, he looks less confident with his protection. He looks less confident reading coverages. And I mean, I, but to his credit, I also don't think, and you touched on it, that Gruden has been overly impressive the last three weeks, especially uh, against the Texans. Uh, you know, we can just get right into that game. The Jaguars, uh, you know, they, they faced the 0-4 Texans in Houston in week, in week five, ended up losing 30-14. to 14. Uh, That was the first game for the Texans in the post-Bill O'Brien era. Uh, it's also the first game the Texans got any turnovers in this year. Uh, Romeo Cornell became the oldest head coach to ever win a game. And the Jaguars lost to a winless opponent for the third straight game. The first time that's happened in NFL history. So pretty historical loss for the Jaguars. I, I always kind of like to look at the little history tidbits of the Jaguars losses. Like when Fitzpatrick beat them on Thursday night football, that was his sixth victory against them with a different team. That is just baffling to me. And it feels like there's a new one of those after every game. Definitely. So, and, and I, I think a big thing with the Texans game and, you know, obviously you look at the score, 30 to 14. I think one would look at that and say, okay, the offense and defense both played poorly. And I don't I, – I think that's accurate. The defense did play poorly uh, in the second half. But, I mean, when you look at the pieces they went out there with, I think they exceeded all expectations by far. I think the unit that has the most blame for the loss is actually the offense, which all offseason, uh, all training camp, and through the first couple weeks of the year was supposed to be the strength of the team. And I, I think the big problem with the offense was really how they game planned and went into it. Uh, Marone, head coach Doug Marone has said both uh, – he said after the game on Sunday, and then he, you know, doubled down on it yesterday. Uh, you know, they came in – Houston had the worst rush defense in the entire NFL, but the Jaguars gave James Robinson 17 carries. Uh, I don't know off the top of my head how many Chris Thompson had, but he had a couple twos. But the Jaguars had fewer than 20 design runs but they had over 50 dropbacks against a team whose strengths are pass rush and, you know, their back-end coverage and their weaknesses, their ability to really stop the run. And Marone said that their idea of doing that, of throwing it so much and not running, was because they thought they had to score a lot because of the injuries that they had on defense. And I get that in principle. I just think once you see that it's not working in execution and once you see that the defense is – playing better than you had thought coming in, I think you just have to change that up. I mean, what, what were your takes on that, Gus? I, I just think it was a poorly planned game by the Jaguars coaching staff. Yeah, I think you mentioned this, but Jay Gruden just kind of got away from himself. Like, he definitely was trying to feed James Robinson early, and James Robinson broke out, like, one or two pretty nice runs in the first quarter. And then after that, he just couldn't really get anything going on the in the run game, and he kept kind of getting stuffed, like, at or near the line of scrimmage. And Robinson, as you've, as you've – pointed out many times he's been super good at not having negative plays and all of Robinson's runs through weeks like one through four were basically for positive yardage and so after the first quarter of the Texans game I would say that was kind of lessened and they kind of have less success on the run and so I would have liked to see them stay with the run a little bit more just because Robinson is super talented and I think it would have helped but I mean I kind of I see what they mean like trying to score a lot of points considering their secondary the like weaknesses and injuries in their secondary and in like in common terms it's definitely a good idea to score the most points 
but like you said, like you kind of have to like look at your team and see what's happening. And so, yeah, Jagerin, I think, like that doesn't necessarily have to run the ball percent of the time, but I think running the ball a little bit more and just like even not, not even, like running the ball more, but just not getting away from it so quickly and just panicking and then sending Minshew into like straight dropbacks every play is just not great. And I yeah. Think- no- I, and I, I, I think that's a fair point. I, I think, yeah, it's obvious it has to be pointed out that you have a better chance of hitting a big play and a better chance of winning if you're more successful on your passing plays than your running plays. It's just I, – I, I guess my whole thing is the game, it, w- it was 7-3 to three at halftime, and then yeah. M- Minshew came out in the second half and was stolen even more. I guess, I guess that was my big thing. You know, they would have a couple successful runs with Robinson and then – you'd see him come out with five or six straight passes and a couple of them be incompletions. And like you had said earlier, Minshew just isn't the quarterback who should be given that volume a level of passes. I think that's when you see his kind of limitations in terms of arm strength and physical talent come out is when you're asking him to throw it 50 times a game. And I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I just, I think he's not a quarterback that's built for that. I've said it a few times. I think he's the perfect quarterback for a team like 2017 Jaguars who they want big plays through the air and they want efficient quarterback play, but they're going to lean on areas other than throwing it 40, 50 times a game, you know? I mean, and it just seems like they're going – they've gone away from that in a couple weeks. And to an extent, that's kind of, I I think, maybe an indictment of their team building because how good is your quarterback really if you can't rely on him to – you know, throw it, for, throw the ball all over the place for four quarters and win. But that's a conversation for another day that I'm sure we're going to have yeah. in a couple of weeks. Uh, one thing that I would add, just in terms of like kind of Gruden getting away from the game plan and not running as much, is also like they use way less play action when they're losing, which kind of makes sense. And our friend Pin of Jack on Twitter kind of pointed this out. But uh, like, they just are not using play action nearly enough, especially because Gardner Johnson's really good at it, or Gardner Minch is really good at it. Last season, he, the differential between his completion percentage on play action versus not play action was 18.9%, which usually led the league. And then his differential between yards per attempt on play action or no play action was uh, 4.4 yards per play, which was sixth in the league. And then this year, it's more of the same thing. They're using it very rarely. Gardner ranks. 29th out of 33 eligible quarterbacks in play action rate according to pro football focus but he has an 8.8 percent for completion percentage differential using play action and 2.1 yards per attempt differential using play action and so I think part of I think one misconception that NFL fans have in general is that the run kind of causes play action and so like you need to run in order to establish the pass and stuff like that which isn't necessarily true like you can use play action and still have it be successful even if you don't run a lot and so I think Jay Gruden doesn't really understand that and I hope that he does understand it soon because Minshew has been really really good this season and last season using play action but because they're in negative game scripts they get away from run and they get away from play action and then it's just Minshew dropping back and not really knowing what to do and just scrambling or checking down and so I'd really like even if I would like to see Robinson get more carries because he's earned it, but I'd also like to see more play action with that as well because I think that would be super beneficial for the entire offense. Yeah, and I, I would 100% agree with you that that's something that Jay Gruden either doesn't know or doesn't believe. I think it's more likely it's something that he doesn't believe because, you know, he's clearly a, a smart guy, and I think it's more likely a case of 
you know, he's been around football for decades and he's had it drilled into his head that entire time that, hey, you have to run the ball to have play action. And football coaches are notoriously stuck in their ways. I think, and, you know, you mentioned fans don't understand that point a lot. I think coaches even more don't understand it because as far as, as far as advances as we make in terms of, you know, analytics and strategically, you know, doing the right thing, it feels like play action is one thing coaches just, you know, they, they have not come around on the fact that you can do it without, you know, a successful running game. And right. I, I, I think the Jaguars are definitely a case of that because Gruden has said in press conferences this year that, you know, to do play action, they're going to need to run the ball. And he has said to run the ball, they need to not be behind. So I, 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 think, a, I think a good reason Robinson wasn't getting a lot of carries week one to four was because the game was almost never close. Uh, I think the reason for it happening in week five was more due to negligence from uh, the coaching staff and the game plan. But like you said, I, I, I do understand the theory that, hey, our three best defenders are hurt. We're going to need to score 35 points. But I think when it's 7-3 to three at halftime, you need to understand that uh, this, <laughs> this game probably is not going not gonna to play out like that. But all right, uh, I mean – uh, other than that, I mean, what what do you see as the primary reason the Jaguars lost in Week Five, and I, I, what do you really think is the primary reason they're one and four right now? I mean, I gotta say, coaching. I know it's kind of a dry subject, and we just kind of keep hammering it home over and over again for the past weeks and months and years. But I th- I think coaching is what really cost the Jaguars this game, especially their decision making at the end of the first half, because they called or we had a third and three in the red zone. And then we had a pass to Shana that went for negative three yards. And that just, I don't think it was like a play design that was meant to go right to Shana. I think Gardner just kind of took the Shana throw in the flat, like really early instead of kind of looking at the field. But regardless, it still could have been a better play call probably and a result in a negative three yard loss. But then even worse than that was on fourth and six, they decided to kick a field goal and uh, Hauschka missed the 24-yarder, and they probably should have gone for it instead. New York Times has this, like, metric for fourth down conservativeness, and the Jags ranked second worst or second least aggressive in fourth down aggressiveness since Maroon was became head coach in 2017 full-time. And so I think just – I don't, like, I think Garun is getting a little bit too much hate from fans in terms of play calling because, like, the offense does need to – execute it yeah but at the same time his play calling could be better especially in the red zone and then just like being conservative when like you know the Deshaun Watkins is going to turn it on at some point like Maroon said like you said that they knew they had to put points on the board still like go for a touchdown instead of a field goal especially when you're on your second kicker of the season yeah and, like he heard his groin wasn't available last week like considering the kicking situation especially I thought it was kind of foolish for them to the field goal there. He, he, Marone made a couple of similar conservative decisions in week four, too. I thought, I thought week four was an extremely conservative game by Marone until it came down to the two point conversion against the Bengals. Uh, so I think that's definitely Which was the right call. So that was good. Yeah, no, no, it, it was definitely the right call. And I, I think the reason that play didn't work out was, like you said, I think when you get down to the red zone, I think it's a lot more about execution than it is about design and that kind of stuff because a lot more things, you know, it's more condensed. It's more one-on-one. It's more you having to beat the guy across from you. And I think that's where the Jaguars have failed a lot in the red zone this year. But I also think Gardner Minshew deserves some blame for that because 
you pointed out, you know, him throwing the Chenault uh, right away on the third down. I'm not sure if that was the right read or not. Uh, something can ask uh, Gruden when he speaks this week. But I did ask Gruden last week about the two-point play against the Bengals where Minshew kind of threw it to James Robinson in the flat right away. And, you know, he had said, hey, there were other reads, but he thought he was outflanking the defender, so he got the ball to him. When you watch on all 22, it was clear the first read was supposed to go to DJ Shark, and he was wide open off of the line of scrimmage. So I think just little plays like that kind of show the issues the Jaguars are having in the red zone this year. And then you couple it with questionable decisions and designs. Like, I, I don't even know what to say about that that fourth down, James Robinson halfback pass. Like, yeah, I, I'd agree with you that Gruden is probably getting too much hate right now, but whatever criticism he gets to that play, it's, it's, it's well-deserved. I mean, I, I, I should know what down and distance it was. I know it was fourth down. I don't remember if it was. It was fourth and one, and it was on, like, the 12-yard line of the Texans. Fourth, fourth and yeah, 20. But. Halfback pass on fourth and one, where you're only running two routes to begin with. And it was two to the short side of the field. So, Robinson right. only had, you know, a, a, a second or two to even scan the field. That just looked like a disaster from from the start. Yeah, and like, why? Yeah, yeah, it 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 looked like a it looked like a jet fish uh, play when uh, in 2013 when they had an expansion roster and they had to do like flea flickers and stuff like that just to get 10 yards. That's right. what kind of play it looked like. Yeah, their most efficient play back then was a Mercedes Lewis screen. <laughs> you mean the Brad Meester screen? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you're right. Like James Robinson throwing to a covered James O'Shaughnessy in the end zone is just not ideal and like the play or the fact that they went for and fourth and one is obviously great yeah and I, I like the idea of trickery but like whoever the commentator for the game was made a good point like they motioned Gardner out to the left side and so the Texans like knew before the snap that obviously something weird was going to happen and so like if you're going to do a trick play at least have Gardner under center and then like make for make play calling like as less predictable as possible in my opinion yeah Okay. And I, I think even maybe another thing was uh, instead of, you know, having Gardner, like you said, uh, you know, go outside, maybe, you know, take Gardner off the field for that play, put Chenault at quarterback for that play. Because, you yeah. know, when he's at quarterback, uh, defenses have no idea really what's going to happen with the play. They see Robinson with the ball at quarterback. They can assume he's probably going to try to go up the middle or outside. Uh, they're not going to assume as a pass, but the Jags ran only two routes and the Texans jumped them immediately. So, it was just a play that was kind of doomed from the start. Uh, I agree with you. I think going forward on fourth down was by far the right move, I, I, especially after those two disaster kicks at the end of the first half, I think. If they would have tried to kick a field goal again, uh, probably would have been a fireable offense right then in and of itself. But I just – you got to pick your moments when you go, go for plays like that. And I can think of at least ten other moments off the top of my head that were better situations for that play call than fourth and one with the game, you know, essentially on the line. But uh, we're essentially in agreement there. So, we you know, we've talked mostly about the offense for this pot. Uh, I want to shift to the defense, which, you know, through the first four weeks was, in my opinion, the worst defense in the league. I know not by all metrics, but just when you're considering, like, all right, what do they do well and who do they have that make plays – you know, like at least, at least the Cowboys have a few guys who can make who can make plays. The Jaguars weren't having anybody consistently make plays through the first month, and then they go into Houston without the three best defenders and Josh Allen, C.J. Henderson, and Miles Jack. And they put forth, I thought, 
their best defensive performance this season. I thought it was even better than the performance against the Colts. Uh, that says a lot about their season because it was still a bad defensive performance. But, uh, I mean, did, did, were you encouraged at all by the signs that the defense that was depleted showed? Um, I was encouraged more by, the, like, their effort level and the fundamentals, as Todd Wash would say, more than anything else, just because I think it's kind of a story of two halves. Like, in the first half, I thought Wash – I mean, I'm not, like, a huge film guy or anything, but just by looking at the All-22, it seemed like Wash ran a little more man defense than he usually does. And somehow it worked. Like, Brandon Cooks cooked, uh, no pun intended, uh, Chris Claybooks on the first play of scrimmage. Not a scrimmage, but on the Texans' first offensive play. But then, like, other than that, on the in the first half, they played really well against the Texans. And they only had, what, seven or ten points at halftime. And I was just impressed by their effort level more than anything else. But then, uh, in the second half, Wash kind of went back to his cover three love. And Deshaun just kind of turned on – turn on the heat because in the first half, honestly, like I said, I was impressed by like the effort level of the Jags defense. And I was like pleasantly surprised that the corners were able to kind of keep up with the receivers whenever we did run man coverage. But also I kind of thought that the Texans offense was dry. I think that's kind of an underrated look. Like I felt like their whole offense was like an inside zone run from shotgun or like a spacing or stick concept for like a five yard curl or, like, RPOs, and they had a few, like, good play-action shots, but other than, like, well-designed play-action throws, it was kind of, like, a boring offense. But then once Wash went back to the cover three more in the second half, I thought Watson kind of just turned it on, and, like, he was able to kind of dissect the zone a lot. Um, and then even when he wasn't able to dissect the zone, he kind of just made a fool out of our defensive line and had a couple of big scrambles and scrambled drills that resulted in first downs and big plays. And so it was kind of just Deshaun turning it on gets his own in the second half. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, that's essentially go ahead. I was going to say, finish the first, considering our best three defenders were out, it was definitely impressive up until like midway through the fourth when it was basically garbage time. So yeah, and I, I, that's essentially, you know, what you described, you know, them limiting Deshaun in the first half and didn't him just running wild in the second half. That's more or less what happened in both games against the Texans last year. So I'm almost inclined to think, uh, you know, I'd need to, I would need to look at all three of them back to back to back to find any similarities. But I mean, when there's a pattern like that, you almost have to think, okay, you know, maybe this is on their approach and how they kind of operate. Uh, I, I think Watson is out of all the quarterbacks the Jaguars uh, are going to consistently face for the next couple of years. I, I think he's a new Peyton Manning. You know, I, I think he's a guy who's just, Two times a year, I think he's going to make their life hell. And he, they, they might beat him now and then. I think they've beat him one time in a game that he's played, and he only played about half that game. Uh, that was his that was the first game of 2017 because TJ Yates played the second game that year. And I'm embarrassed that I know that off the top of my head. But um, <laughs> I just – it just Watson, he, he, to me, he is the hardest quarterback in the NFL uh, to sack, to bring down in the pocket. Uh, he actually sacks himself sometimes by doing that, just right. the way he kind of runs around. So he he's really kind of hit or miss in terms of pocket movement. But against the Jaguars, it seems like it's always hit. Like he just – some of the sacks he got out of on Sunday, it it, it was just kind of I, – I just – I couldn't imagine the frustration of the guys who were trying to sack him. Like, you know, they were doing everything they could. They got two hands on him. Uh, Caleb Vaughn Chase on, who has been, you know, relatively disappointing through five weeks – uh, to most, to, to me, he's kind of played to my expectations for 
a raw rookie pass rusher, but he had his first multiple pressure game of his career on Sunday. And you wouldn't even know it because Watson was just kind of making him look silly when he actually got close to him. So I, I, I think that's going to be something the Jaguars are going to be dealing with for a while. Uh, I, I think Watson uh, is generally a player who can contend for an MVP year in and year out. And I mean, even when the Jaguars defense has been good, they've struggled with him. So I think that's just something you're going to chalk up each time you play the Texans that, Hey, we're going to score a lot of points, but I mean, something I was, uh, I was thinking earlier, uh, you look at Gardner Minshew's three career starts against the Texans, and they haven't exceeded uh, 14 points once. They scored 14 points, 12 points, and 7 points. And none of those Texans teams had good defenses or even good teams. So I, I, I think that's something to right. look at moving forward. Uh, Minshew just – Yeah, I remember the one – Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I remember in the London game last year, he was just all over the place and kept turning the ball over, and it was rough stuff. And that's when he, I think he got benched uh, for Nick Foles before he eventually came back towards the end of the season. Yeah, but yeah, it was. The London game especially was rough. And then I think it was week two of last season. He actually had, like, a pretty decent performance in his first career start. Yeah. I guess if he didn't score 14 points, it was impressive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I, I thought – it, that was an impressive performance by him in his first career start. And then when you look at it, though, 12 points against the Texans. First start, pretty good. But at the end of the day in the NFL, you know, wins and losses. And, I, you know, a lot, lot like Sunday, you know, Gardner made a couple plays in week five that were really impressive. But he didn't make enough plays to win the game. And he made uh, too many mistakes in critical moments. So I think that's something they're going to have to monitor moving forward. And, I mean, just like you said, uh, the defense is another piece of the team that, moving forward, they're going to need to see some kind of improvement from basically every area because every position group is, is is struggling. You know, I mean, there's a few standout players. Like, you know, Miles Jack is playing well, but nobody would say the Jaguars linebackers are playing well right now. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll see moving forward. But I, I would agree with you. I thought there, it was encouraging in terms of effort, and uh, I thought – Two individual defensive performances were really impressive with Sidney Jones and Dewan Smoot. Uh, I thought that was the best game of Dewan Smoot's career. Uh, you know, he didn't he, – he technically got a sack, which I've been waiting every day for that sack to get reversed into a tackle for loss on the <laughs> stat sheet. And um, – but, you know, he had six pressures. Uh, according to PFF, that's the most he's ever had in the game. Uh, Marone said yesterday that was one of the better, if not the best games he's played. And Marone has been here since he was drafted. And then Jones, I I don't think you can justify Jones not starting the rest of the season. Even, you know, when C.J. Henderson comes back, I think it has to be C.J. and Sidney on the outside and then Trey Herndon on the inside while D.J. Hayden is hurt. And then when slash if Hayden gets back, if they must play him, because I, I honestly probably I, – I would say the D.J. Hayden error, if I was running the show, would be over just what they saw from him in the first four weeks. But if they do put him back on the field when he returns, I'd put Sidney Jones at the other corner spot over Trey Hartman. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's kind of disappointing because DJ Hayden was actually probably our best cornerback last year. And so it's kind of tough to see him struggle this year. But yeah. I, if anything, I'd probably start Chris Claybrooks, honestly, over Hayden because Claybrooks has been burned a couple times. And those two back-to-back run plays against the Bengals in week four were pretty ugly. But overall, he's been, like, a decent player. And so I almost feel like like with the youth movement they've got going on, they'd rather see 
the rookie play than he, the 30-year-old veteran. He, ha- he has been, but here's where I think the big issues have come with playing the young guys. A lot of people have been frustrated by, say, like Josiah Scott not playing. The, the Jaguars are very kind of strict about, all right, you're an inside corner or you're an outside corner. You know, I mean, with the Claybrooks, I, I, I think the Jaguars, uh, I think Cassius Marsh has more uh, snaps in the slot than Claybrooks, you know, does this season. So when a lot of people were kind of frustrated over Josiah Scott not being a starter at slot this weekend, Trey Herndon has been their backup at slot for the last three years. And they basically, they just, Todd Walsh likes to use as few cornerbacks as possible. So if he can start a guy on the outside and then move him to slot on third down and bring in Sidney Jones, which is what he did on Sunday, that's basically what he's going to do. But I, I would agree with you. And it is kind of disappointing with Hayden just because I think over the last two years, he was one of their best defenders. And I think he was probably the best back seven defender over the last two years, you know, not counting the front front four guys like uh, Campbell or Ngakwe or Josh Allen last year. I'd say Hayden was the best defender the last two years, but this year I think it's simply a case of, you know, age has caught up to him and you can see he's kind of lost the juice, you know, in his legs. I I think you can especially see it in man coverage, uh, the Titans games, for example. Adam Humphreys isn't exactly an easy cover for most slot corners, but he was leaving Hayden in the dust. And, you know, same thing happened with Tyler Boyd in week four. So DJ Hayden had a great first two years in Jacksonville. But to, to me, I think it'd be time for either Herndon or Josiah Scott in the slot the rest of the season. But yeah. I, I, I'm with you there. I, I, I honestly, I think up until this past Sunday, I thought Clay Brooks was probably the best cornerback this season, which is, which is saying something. For sure. I completely forgot about Scott, honestly. I was excited about him when we drafted him in the fifth he, round. But. He's been active. He's been active for one game, and he, didn't play, he hasn't played a snap yet. Active for one game. and I, I thought he was really impressive in camp, which is what's weird, that he has not yet been active. And as much as I think Claybrooks is interesting because just of his pure speed and he's had moments in coverage, the Jaguars drafted Josiah Scott, you know, to – provide depth at corner right away, and they drafted Claybrooks to be a kick returner. We're five weeks into the season, and Claybrooks hasn't returned a kick in a month because he kept fumbling them. But after they said, all right, we're drafting him to be a returner, and then maybe he can play cornerback, you know, eventually, one day after he learns it, he's only a cornerback now, and he's starting over guys you drafted. So I just – that 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 kind of short-sightedness, I think, is something they've dealt – they've had issues with in the past. And I think it's – Claybrooks is a good example of – them kind of bungling a situation like that again. Would you agree with that? Definitely. I'd be interested in knowing, like, if Scott's size has anything to do with it because he's kind of been, like, just shoved into the slot role just because he's a small dude. And he was really good at Michigan State as a slot corner. But, like, he was small. And so I wonder if, like, because Wash likes playing, like, catch yeah. and, like, all the linebackers on the field as opposed to playing more nickel D. Yeah. I wonder if, like, it just like Wash preferring a bigger guy than a smaller guy has something to do with his playing time. No, I mean I could I could definitely see that honestly, and I, w- I was kind of shocked when they drafted Scott because I did an article a few weeks before the draft, uh, kind of looking at their thresholds for the position in terms of measurements and athletic testing. And I mean Scott obviously met the athletic testing, the stuff that he did because he's a really athletic guy, but he didn't meet a single one of their you know physical th- thresholds in terms of height length, weight, that kind of thing. So he, he he's kind of an outlier for the Dave Caldwell era in terms of cornerbacks they've drafted. I mean, you look at pretty much every other corner they've drafted, 
Aaron Colvin is the only one I can think that's similar to Scott, and he was even a, a good bit bigger than Scott. So Scott was a surprise pick to me just because he kind of was nothing like any corner they've invested in yet. And we've still yet to see him, but I think if the season continues like this, that you're going to see him eventually. But, I'm, I mean, you know, time will tell. But, all right, well, we've about dissected that uh, awful, awful Houston game <laughs> about it as much as we can. Uh, I rewatched it uh, yesterday, and then we watched the all 22 of it today. And honestly, a lot of times I'll watch the all 22, or I'll do my rewatch the next morning, and I'll pick up on things I didn't notice during the game. Not not this time, honestly. It was kind of it, it. It was kind of a pretty open and shut case, you know. Hey, the Jaguars uh, they had a couple opportunities, and the offense didn't take advantage of a single one of them. And that's the game. I'm, that, that's basically how I saw it. How about Fine. We did have those two turnovers, especially the big one at the end of the first half when Sidney Jones got the big pick against Will Fuller. But then we were basically in field goal position. And then because of one play that kind of lost yardage and then a holding penalty by, I think it was Jawan Taylor, we it got knocked back to a 49-yard field goal. And how she could have missed that one for a second missed field goal of the half. And then just not being able to make – take advantage of red zone opportunities. Like we talked about the play calling, but I like I, you had a good point earlier that I was going to touch on, but just like how condensed the field is. And so I think that definitely goes against the Jaguars and the red zone, just because teams are able to kind of stack the box more against James Robinson. But then like Gardner, we know Gardner does want to throw deep very often. And so the fact that there's like not very much room to throw and he wants to throw to flats anyway, just like is not a very good recipe for red zone success. And so yeah. that's why that's why I think that, uh, like, Jay Gruden hasn't been perfect. Or he hasn't, he's gotten probably a little bit too much hate, but he definitely could do a little bit better. Maybe kind of spread out the offense when, they, when he wants to run instead of doing, like, power formations or two tight end sets. And then just trying to use as much, like, motion and deception as possible. Just try to get open plays in the red zone. I think that's – it's kind of been coming back to the red zone, honestly. Because, like you said, we definitely need to kind of take advantage of the turnovers. Yeah. All the opportunities, but – and they they were really efficient in the red zone for through the first couple of weeks of the season. It's just the last couple of weeks, it feels like it's kind of reverted back to last season. And I, I think you made a good point. You know, I mean, Gardner already kind of wants to dump the pass off for a short gain. So when you're in the red zone, it's a lot easier for defenses to kind of, you know, gang tackle the ball carrier when he does that. And I think that's exactly what happened to Chenault on that third down in the first half. So that, that's a good point. Um, and now, uh, you know, we can move past the Texans and talk a little bit about uh, the game coming up. The uh, Jaguars are playing um, the boy with the biggest brain, Matt Patricia, and uh, <laughs> the, the Detroit Lions this upcoming weekend. The Lions are one and three. Uh, it's always weird for me to see a team with a bye so early. I've been wanting to say that they're one and four literally this entire time. But uh, Jaguars are going to play the Lions this Sunday in Jacksonville. Uh I mean, I think when you're one and four, every single game is a must-win game at this point uh, because the fall, the the further you fall, you know, in the win-loss column, the harder it is to dig out of there. And being one and five, you, you would have to go. I mean, what what is it uh, that be through six games? You'd have to win almost ten games to even get to you know five hundred by the end right. of the year. So that's just. That's just not something that would put the Jaguars in a good position. Uh, I think the season's already spiraling at this point, so I think a loss to a bad Lions team would be even worse. So just l- l- let me go ahead and get your uh, 
general prediction for Jaguars lines this weekend. Do you think the Jaguars get back on track or for the fourth game in a row, do they serve as a kind of a homecoming get right game for the other team? Definitely a homecoming get right game for the other team. The Lions did beat the Cardinals earlier this season, which is a pretty impressive win. Um, but they're coming off a bye, and I think they're going to kind of look at their defense. They've, they're historically like extremely man-heavy in terms of defensive scheme under Patricia. But then against the Cardinals, they switched it up and played a lot of zone. And so I'm kind of scared either way because Minshew uh, typically does better against zone than he does man because he just – typically kind of scared to throw into his tight windows. And so assuming that, like, Jeff Okuda and the rest of the Lions defense is able to kind of step with the uh, Jags receivers, like, I can just see Minshew kind of continuing to check down and scramble if he doesn't like what he sees being able to, uh, like, force it into one-on-one situations. And then it's the opposite on the other side of the field because, like, uh, Matt Stafford and Marvin mm-hmm. Jones and T.J. Hawkinson and Kenny Galladay – um, they could feast against the Jags secondary, especially because Matt Stafford is not afraid to let the ball fly, especially yeah, yeah. Kenny Galladay. And, like, with one-on-one coverage against Chris Claybrooks or whoever it's going to be, like, you'll bet on Kenny Galladay nine times out of ten to come down with caches. And so I'm pretty – even if, it, like, the bye doesn't help because I think just every team, even with a iffy head coach like Matt Patricia, is better after a bye and kind of reevaluate, reevaluate their team. But I'm especially scared just because of their the Lions' offensive and defensive kind of schemes and just what they're trying to do on both sides of the ball. It doesn't really kind of goes against what the Jags like to do. Yeah. So I'm a little nervous. Yeah. It could be an ugly game. I, they definitely seem like a team that the Jaguars would struggle up matchup wise. Um, I'm not sure the Jaguars have uh, enough corners on really uh, healthy corners on the roster to readily be able to cover, you know, Galladay, Jones, uh, Damian Amendola is a solid slot guy. And then uh, Hawkinson um, obviously is a really talented tight end. I, I think I think the Jaguars have a – obviously, they obviously have a shot to win because if you don't have a shot to win against the Lions at this point of the year, your season's over and you just need to clean house now. So they obviously, I think, have a chance to win. I think that chance is – You'll rarely hear me say a receiver on the team is more important in any given week than DJ Chark, but I think LaVisca Chenault is the X factor versus the Lions. And the reason I say that is because the Lions under Matt Patricia, I have no evidence for this, but I'm going to go ahead and be hyperbolic anyways. The slowest defense I can possibly imagine being put on the field. They, 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 They build an emphasis on, you know, strength and, you know, brooding size in the front seven and then physical physicality, uh, you know, in the secondary. And they just – other than Okuda, I don't know who they have on defense that is actually athletic. <laughs> you know, like, obviously, they're all NFL athletes, but in comparison, you know, to other athletes, any guys who are above average athletes, you know. I mean, uh, to buy the linebacker is uh, – I'm pretty sure Paul Pozlesny would dust him in a 40-yard dash. Uh, current day Paul Pazlesny too. Not 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 play day Paul Pazlesny. I'm talking 2020 retired for three years Paul Pazlesny. So I think Chenault's important because I think the Jaguars have chances to get him in space against a defense that can't defend space and I think he could really have a big day against them because to me he is he's the most talented yards after the catch guy they've had in a while and I think he's even better after the catch than Shark is and I think Shark's a pretty 
damn good receiver after the catch. But I, I, I think Chenault is already at a better level with the ball in his hands. So I think if they can get him the ball in his hands and space enough times, I think he could have the biggest game of his career. Uh, defensively, get right game for Stafford. I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't think of any real reason why the Jaguars would have success. Uh, they've struggled against rookie quarterbacks this year. They've struggled against middling veterans. There's no reason for me to think that they wouldn't struggle against uh, Matt Stafford. So I'm with you. Uh, I think the Lions likely win. Uh, the Jaguars will probably get a few guys that are banged up back, but they're just not a very good team right now. And I think until the offense shows that it can be consistent, all it is is a question mark at, at this point. I, I don't think you can ever – that Jaguars can say right now that they're confident in winning a game because of the offense. I think, you know, you can say – we might be able to score a lot of points and win, but I don't think you can confidently say each week that, you know, like the Seahawks or the Chiefs can do right now where you can be like, okay, we're walking into that game and we're scoring a couple touchdowns no matter what, and we'll see how everything else plays out. I don't – the Jaguars obviously can't say that right now. I mean, I, I should have checked it, but their points per game, they're not, they're not ranked much better right now than they were last year under John DeFilippo. I mean, they're scoring more points, but so is the entire NFL. You know, so, I mean, in comparison to the other teams, the offense just isn't – isn't that good right now. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair. Going back to your point about LaVisca, I'm a little nervous. I keep trying to temper expectations because he looks so good, but I'm just a little afraid he's, like, just a glorified gadget player. And so, like, he kind of disappeared in the second half of the Texans game. They kind of, like, they schemed him open a couple times in the first, second quarter, and he did really well. But then, like, when it kind of counted, like, he was just, like, he disappeared up until, like, garbage time, like, late in the fourth. And so, like, I'm just afraid that, like, we talked about, like, Jay Gruden kind of, like, getting away from himself and just forcing uh, Minshew dropbacks. Like, I think it's definitely a good idea to get Visca into space, especially against this bad uh, Detroit defense, as you mentioned. But I'm just – like I said, I'm just – I keep trying to temper expectations because he's so good, but I'm just a little afraid he's not going to be, like, a reliable NFL receiver and that he's more of just, like, a freak athlete that can be used well. I think that's understandable to a point. I, I think he's at, at the least. I think he has shown better hands and kind of ability to navigate contact and contorting his body in the air to bring down a high pass. Like he's caught several high passes from Minshew already this year. Definitely. So yeah. So I, I think he has shown at least some ability in that area. But I, I'd say the one area he has to get better in, like you said, is getting open basically on his own. Uh, it's I'm glad you brought up first half, second half, because first half against the Bengals was the same way. You know, he had almost 90 yards in the first half of the Bengals game. Uh, he left the second half with an injury, but before he left, he didn't have a catch uh, in the second half. So that definitely is uh, something to consider. His first half splits are definitely a lot better in the second half. Uh, same thing with the Colts game. Most of his damage came in the first half. Uh, that's actually a good idea to maybe go deeper into, is that a LaVisca issue? Is that a Gardner issue? Is that a Gruden issue? I don't have any answer for that right now, but to go along with my hyperbolic prediction, I'm going to say it's not LaVisca's fault. And when it is LaVisca's fault, I did not have that take. All right, <laughs> moving on. Uh, I mean, which we, we talked about LaVisca uh, a, a little bit, but which uh, defensive player would you say is the most important for the Jaguars against the Lions? Definitely Miles Jack. And I think, like, it's kind of an obvious answer, but I think it's partly because he's been so good this year and, like, by and far away, our best player on the team, not just on defense, but, like, easily the best player on the Jaguars, Jaguars 
through the first four weeks until he missed last week with an injury. But I also say because, like, last week, um, who was it that replaced him? Dakota Allen? Just yeah. Like, like I, I, don't, I don't like hating on players just because they're, like, in a different world from us in terms playing of – Playing football's hard. But, like, he just looked – he looked like he was on a different planet and just, like, didn't know where the ball was on pass or run plays. And so I think, like, not just to have, like, our best player back, but to have our best player back and replace yeah. – like a bad player is just going to be huge for the defense. And I think that's, I mean, my, my, I agree with you completely. And I think a good way to really describe the drop off from miles to Allen. And obviously you're going to have a drop off when you go from arguably the best linebacker in the league in 2020, which I believe Jack has been the best linebacker in the NFL this year. When you go from him to a second year player who has never gotten real action, you're going to see a big drop off, but yeah. Allen's been solely responsible for two touchdowns over the last two weeks. That's two scores that maybe don't happen with Miles on the field. You know, the Darren Fells uh, wide-open touchdown that looked like uh, you could have completed the pass. Uh, <laughs> Marone said after the game that that happened because they had a new starter in that couldn't that didn't cover the over route. He didn't say who, but you say new starter, and uh, the play is nowhere near any of the new cornerbacks. I'm going to go ahead and assume you mean Dakota Allen. Right. And then the week before, uh, Allen, uh, you know, he filled the wrong gap on Joe Mixon's second long touchdown run. So I, I, I think you just – you simply look at the plays he's given up. And, yeah, he's had a couple impressive stops, like a nice tackle on a screen for, you know, to lose a few yards. But you can't really balance that with giving up two touchdowns. You know, a tackle for loss does not <laughs> raise two touchdowns allowed in two games. So I'd agree with you. I think Miles coming back be a big boost just because he's getting Allen off the field. Um, honestly, I, w- I would have played Quincy Williams over Allen just because I think you need to see what yeah. you have what you have in Williams. You know, you spent a third-round pick on him uh, a little bit out of a panic. Uh, you don't need him as much now because you now have one of the best weak side linebackers in the league. But my thinking going into the week was the Jaguars should start Quincy over Allen. Uh, if Jack doesn't play Sunday, I think that's what needs to happen because – I think Hawkinson on Allen would be probably one of the mismatches of the week. And I'm not a guy who's a big Hawkinson guy either. Like, he's, he's talented, but going into that draft, I was like, this is who you're drafting in the top ten? <laughs> like, not, not the freak athlete that plays on this team? All right. Um, I'd agree with you. I'd probably go with C.J. Henderson as my most important player just because I think Kenny Galladay is one of those players that can single-handedly win a game for a team. Uh, he's one of the best deep threats in the league, one of the best contested catch guys in the league. Uh, he's big, he's physical, he's strong. Uh, if Chris Clayburks had issues with Brandon Cooks and his speed, uh, a lot of the reason he had issues with Cooks was because he wasn't getting any hands on him on the line of scrimmage. You mentioned the first play where Watson hit Cooks for like a 40-yard gain. You don't even need all 22 to see where Clayburks lost it. You can see it, you know, on, on the broadcast film. He misses his hands, uh, his jab at the line of scrimmage. And when you do that as a corner against a player who's athletic, you're going to get beat. And Cooks is a guy who, I, in my opinion, he's easier to beat at the line of scrimmage than Galladay just because Galladay, he's just as explosive, but he has so much more size and strength. So I think that's a big mismatch for the Jaguars uh, if Henderson isn't on Galladay. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, just as like a guy that in- – Reports for the team and been talking to all the players and the coaches. What would you say like the injury level is for 
Jack, Chark, and Henderson? Like, do you think last week was just kind of a let's make sure these guys are 100% healthy and, like, they'll be good to go this week? Or do you think it's more lingering problems that we can see throughout the season? I do partially think it was kind of a they just wanted to be cautious because it was weird. Maroon said last Monday, you know, he doesn't give his detailed injury updates until Wednesday, but he said last Monday that he felt optimistic about every injured player except DJ Hayden playing. And then every injured player ended up not playing at all. So the entire weekend, I was like, all right, what were you optimistic about exactly? Um, I think, I think they certainly have a better chance uh, to play this week. Uh, We'll see if any of them are at practice tomorrow. But, I mean, Miles and CJ were limited at all of practice last week. It's not like they were missing practice completely, you know. Normally when a guy's limited, uh, especially for the entire week, it means he's pretty close to getting back on the field if he's not already ready. So I think that they'll be ready. Uh, Marone said again yesterday that he he thinks that everybody but Andrew Wingard will be able to play and Josh Lambeau, but – I'm not going to take his word on it this week like I did last week. <laughs> Learned yeah. my lesson on that one. But I'd be surprised if Jack and Henderson didn't play. Um, Allen is a different one just because we don't know what his injury is. You know, it, it was kind of weird. He left the Bengals game with a knee injury, which is what it's been classified as. But he left that game in, like, the first quarter. And he came back, and he ended up playing the most snaps he's played all year, his highest snap percentage he's played all year. So – if the same if the injury is the same one he got from that game, which I don't know if it is, and I never assume about injuries, it's kind of weird that he played that entire game and then since then, you know, it's kind of been mums a word about him. But I think they definitely need definitely need him back. Uh, the the Smoot was impressive, but I I think Chase on I said it coming into the year that Chase on what uh, is a guy that I don't think you're going to see many good returns on until next year, and I think that's kind of you know proving true. So. All right, uh, we'll get we'll get to this next one, and then this is really uh, you know the last segment of the pod. I made sure to do this with the first time we did the pod. I want to do this again. Gus, I'm put you on the spot, put you on the hot seat. Give me your hottest Jaguars take today. My hottest Jaguars take today. Are you going to be able to edit out the 30 seconds that I think about this? No. Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, I'll give you mine right now. My hottest Jaguars take. I, don't even have to think about it. My hottest Jaguars take is I would not throw the ball to Tyler Eifert anymore unless he is literally the only person open. He he Ooh. has more targets than everybody but uh, Cole, Chenault, and uh, I'm trying to think. I believe Conley. And I think Robinson might have more targets too. But he has more targets than DJ Chark, and he has 93 yards receiving this year. Uh, he caught three passes on seven targets for 16 yards last year. I mean, last week. Uh, throwing, throwing to him has been a disaster at every point this year for Minshew. Uh, he doesn't look like a dynamic receiving threat anymore. He's actually been blocking pretty solid, but I just I, I would I would erase all of the Tyler Eifert plays in the playbook and either insert James O'Shaughnessy into them or just forget about them entirely. All right, well, my hottest take definitely was that Gardner Minshew's a high-end backup, but now all the Jags fans kind of seem to be leaning over to that side after bickering with me on Twitter during the summer. Uh, but right now, I don't know. It's just the chase on pick never made sense to me, and it's kind of like in hindsight it's easy to say that. But like taking a developmental player who is like purely a pass rusher, and he, he did have some like nice uh, run stops at LSU. 
but like someone that's going to like develop and like might not even be ready to be a starter next year. Just taking someone like that over C.D. Lamb and Jerry Judy, and well, he might have been taken after those guys. We can still trade up, or you can. Take yeah, them. yeah. Like they, I, just, they, uh... I just really wanted a receiver. I want. Her... I, 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 to my, from what I can remember, um, Justin Jefferson was still on the board when the Jags picked Chase on, and right. uh, I mean, I, I can say it. I can say this now uh, confidently. I, I made sure not to put it out on Twitter a lot then, but I had heard a ton of buzz leading up to the draft that Jefferson was who they loved at 20. So when I saw an LSU guy picked at 20 that wasn't Jeff- Justin Jefferson, I was kind of shocked. I got the pick in theory just because they, they knew that uh, Unique Ngakwe was not going to play for them no matter what. Uh, as much as people were like, is he really going to turn down $17 million? Absolutely, he <laughs> was going to. Uh, so they knew he wasn't going to play, and they needed somebody to give them a athletic speed rush off of the edge because for as talented as Smoot is, he's just not really that kind of rusher. And I think they just looked at the talent pool in the draft and said, hey, we can't really get anybody after the first round, so we need to take the best one available to kind of, you know, replace Josh Allen's role from last year while Allen replaces Ngakwe's role. So I got it in theory. I just you, – you're taking a guy to replace – instantly uh, somebody who produced a ton and there was no reason to think that Chase Hong could come in and match even like a fraction of that production you know he was raw at LSU he wasn't productive at LSU you know he's a really talented player he's really physically gifted he's just he's going to take some time and I think that's something maybe a lot of people didn't realize when he was drafted but they need to he's a guy who he is going to take some time you know what I mean he's flashed some good things uh, he had a really good speed to power rush against Austin Jackson in week three I mean, like I said, he just had his first multi-pressure game of his career. So there are some things there, but I, I'd agree with you. I did not think the Chase on pick when it happened was uh, really the right one. Um, I think you can probably – they can probably take some solace in not picking Jefferson and that Chenault has looked good, but Jefferson has looked arguably even better. So I, 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 th- I think that's probably fair. Yeah, I think Chenault definitely helps make up for it. I just thought that – I mean, before the Chenault pick, we had yeah. Chark, who's obviously a monster, and then Didi, who's barely played this year, and then a couple guys who are just kind of wide receiver three or fours and uh, Keelan Cole and Chris Conley. And so we, I just knew we needed a weapon, and I still think we need more weapons just because maybe it's just my analytical concentration talking, but I just think that passing matters so much, and so I would yeah. love to see – um, even at nine is like what I meant. Like CJ Henderson, I think was a good pick at an important position, but I was just really hoping for a receiver with one of those first two yeah. picks. And so I think, and even now, like it's kind of an old take since the draft was a while ago, but even now I still think a really good third receiver would be super helpful. Yeah. Just real quick, give me, what would have been your take as an analytically minded person if the Jaguars had taken Derek Brown at number nine? Like, I'm pretty <laughs> positive they really wanted to. Oh, my gosh. I was praying against Derek Brown just because, I mean, even as a prospect, I'm, I'm not a huge draft guy, and basically my draft knowledge is just what I read on Twitter. So that will tell you how much I know about the draft. But, like, Derek Brown I thought was a little bit overrated as a prospect, and he was also just way more of a run defender than a pass defender. And, like, you don't draft a, a run-stuffing defensive tackle top 10. Yeah. And so, if anything, like, 
I told myself like I would have settled for Kinlaw at 15 or 20 yeah. or whatever the second pick that we had if we could just get someone better with the first pick. But Derek Henry was definitely my like Derek Henry or a quarterback just because I thought even though like even after last year I didn't think Gardner was the answer. I thought he deserved one more year. Yeah, and I I don't I really don't think there was any downside to giving Gardner this year. I mean, maybe they could have tried to trade up for a quarterback, but you never know. I mean, people hammer them after the draft for not trading up, but my thinking is if you don't know what the conversations that were had, you can't really, I think, you know, put criticisms criticism at it. Maybe they tried to trade up and nobody was interested, but I thought, you know, by the time they pick at nine, there's no quarterback worth taking there at nine, obviously. Uh, there's no quarterback in free agency that's worthwhile, and even if there was, good luck convincing him to come to Jacksonville in 2020, so... I thought it was the right move to give Gardner uh, 2020, like you said. Uh, don't, don't – I think I think it should be a one-year audition, though. I think if you're making excuses for him at the end of this year and you're saying give him one more year, I think that's when you start to take steps back because right now they have nothing invested in him and they're not losing anything by giving him this year. You know, I mean, they were going to struggle no matter who the quarterback was. So that that's just kind of been – I'm just thinking out loud. That's how I've looked at the Gardner situation. I think the Jaguars, like I said, nothing to lose from him starting this year. But if you keep going with negative returns, if he doesn't end up proving the guy after this year, I think that's when he'll start to hurt you. Yeah. And that's kind of why I want a receiver so much is because I was like, I want a receiver to kind of like mold their rookie year so that they're ready for Trevor Lawrence or Fields and like next year, just because like, I know that Gardner's only started 16 or 17 or 18 games in his career. And so, like, I hate to kind of, like, decide for his fate or whatever, like, so early on. But he's just so clearly, like, not going to elevate your team. You can do someone like Jimmy Garoppolo or Derek Carr or, like, maybe someone like that where, like, if you're, like, in a run-heavy offense and, like, with a lot of play action and, like, you get guys schemed open, so basically Jimmy Garoppolo – then, like, yeah, he'd work. Or, like you said, like, he would have been perfect for the Jaguars 2017 team. But, like, on this team, that's, like, not tanking, but has been on the time of possession or most time possession when trailing. Like, he's just not going to win you games with his power play. The way I've put it is I don't think Gardner is the reason they're one and four, but I don't think he's the kind of quarterback who can pull a struggling team out of a rut like that, you know, does that make sense? Like, I think he, I, I think he's a solid quarterback. I think he's, he's definitely one of the 32 best quarterbacks in the NFL, but that's, that's doesn't mean that there's 32 starting caliber quarterbacks in the league, but um, that, that's the way I've seen it. I don't think he's their biggest issue, but uh, it might also, it depends if he's the answer. And I guess that's, you know, what we had the next 11 games, uh, next 12 weeks to figure out. Well, uh, guys, that's all we had for this episode. Uh, you can follow Jaguar Report. It's at Jaguar Report, or, you know, you can go to si.com slash Jaguars. Uh, you can follow me at underscore John underscore Shipley. If you complain about the underscores, go take it up with the sports writer in Minnesota named John Shipley, who's at I've been trying to get for years. Gus, go ahead and give him your at, and we'll get out of here. I'm Gus underscore Logue on Twitter. It's G-U-S underscore L-O-G-U-E. All right. Thanks, everybody. And uh, make sure to go ahead and like and subscribe and uh, go ahead and send some hate tweets, Gus's away. All right. Thanks, everybody.